Great to be with you again. We're continuing our Truth Shaped series. And so this summer, what we've been doing is looking at different topics, uh, trying really to focus on sometimes what are difficult topics or things that there's confusion about in the church uh, and look at what the scriptures have to say about those issues. Um, So we've been jumping from passage to passage, been in different passages this summer. Tonight, we are calling it Truth About Giving and we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along with us, there are Bibles under the chairs, and we'll be on page 967. Page 967. Uh, money is a difficult subject for us. None of us feel like we have enough money, yet we live in the richest country in the world. So we are all, the poorest of us in this room, richer than most of the people in the world. Yet we still struggle with money. We still feel like we don't have enough most of the time, most of us. Uh, So I think we've got a lot to learn uh, as we think about finances, how we handle our finances, how we give, why we give. Um, So let's look at 2 Corinthians 8, uh, and we'll get a model here. I'm just going to read the first like eight or nine verses, I think, to start off with. Um, So 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And then here's the key verse. This is really the the crux of everything we're going to think about tonight. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I'm going to read it one more time. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's really the center of what we're going to be talking about tonight, what Jesus gave for us. Uh, transforms us into the kind of people that want to give to others. I want to just share with you from the very beginning, I know money is a touchy subject, and in pretty much every area of life, this is probably the one area of my life where I feel the most inadequate, being able to handle my finances well and use them in a, in a good, God-honoring way. I, f- I feel like I mess that up a lot. So as I was praying and preparing this message, I'm praying and preparing to preach to myself as well as I preach to you this week. So let me pray for us and ask God to help us tonight. God, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would meet us here, that we would see this, uh, this beautiful picture of you as the God that's given to us. And that in response to that, as we come to trust in you, that we would become generous people. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would fill us up by your spirit, that you would teach us, and that you would shape us by your truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we think about giving and the church, I was kind of recalling different news stories I've seen over the years about churches and about money, and there was a recent story you might have seen. There was a somewhat famous minister that was in the news just this spring 
um, and a lot of people thought this was, was kind of outrageous. He was asking his congregation to give towards a special project so that he could buy a new airplane. Do y'all remember seeing that in the news? Some of you saw that. And it wasn't just his first airplane. It was a second or third airplane because he'd crashed the airplane before that. It was just a newer, nicer airplane. Um, and many people just immediately were repulsed by that, right? A lot, of, a lot of people were just like, oh, that's what's wrong with the church. That's what's wrong with uh, televangelists, you know, and people just immediately had a gut reaction of how um, grotesque that was, how lavish that was. Um, and I'm, I will go on record saying I'm not a fan of that preacher. Uh, I'm not a fan of what he preaches even. But I, I want to help us to see and kind of start with a little lack of clarity so that we can find clarity in the Scriptures. And the lack of clarity I want us to center on before we look at what the text says is that, you know what, that line of what's okay to spend money on and what's not is different for every person. It really is. So I'm not defending him. I, I was not, again, I'm not excited about his ministry. Um, but you know what? When we expand our building, there will be some people at the church that think that's lavish. That's too much. We're out of here, right? Um, there, there's always going to be a line for people where they just feel like, oh, that's just too much money. I, I don't approve of that. And so I want, us to, I want us to see that that is a somewhat relative line to keep of if it just seems like the wrong expense in my heart, it must be, right? I think we need something more objective than that. Instead of just, that seems wrong to me, what does the Scriptures say? And so what I want us to do is look at what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 about our money and about our giving, and where does he draw the line? So that's really what I want us to try to, to, try to figure out as we think about um, how much is enough, how much is too much, what should we give towards, what kind of ministry should we support, not support, um, how should we personally give. So the first thing I want us to look at is the model of giving. What is the model of giving that Paul gives here in 2 Corinthians 8? So it's the section we just read. He gives the model of these Macedonian people and how they gave. And he says, look at these people, look at their model of giving. So, so let's look at it again. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1 He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So hear that word, grace. He starts off by saying, look at these people, they were given grace. So he doesn't say, look at these people because they're so awesome and they're just better than everybody else. He says they received a gift of grace from God, that God's power is at work in their life. So that's where he starts. It's very important. It's a result of God's grace that they're a model of of giving. So I've told you about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So what is he saying? He's saying they were poor and they were going through hard times and they gave generously out of their lack even. He goes on to describe their giving in verse 3. He says, for they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So not only in percentage with what they should have given, but they gave beyond that. And that was because of the grace that God had given to them. And he goes on, he says in verse 4, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were begging us. So this was their attitude. They were poor, they were struggling, they wanted to give, they begged to participate in the relief of the saints. The model was they were giving specifically 
to relieve the suffering of saints who were undergoing a famine. From what the Scriptures tell us and from what history tells us, we understand that there was a great famine in Jerusalem. And so the Jewish Christians, where Christianity started before it began to spread throughout the Gentile world, they were suffering. They were physically suffering. So now in God's sense of humor, this race of people, the Jews, who had formerly seen all the Gentiles as the bad race and the outsiders, now those outsiders are giving money to support the Jewish Christians who are suffering with the famine. Beautiful way to knit together the hearts of the early church. And so their model is they don't have a lot of money themselves, but they're giving above and beyond because they want to, because God's given grace to them, because they want to help out these suffering Christians in Jerusalem and in Judea. He goes on and he says in verse 5, And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. And so he's showing us this model of grace. He repeats the word grace again in verse 6. He repeats it again uh, in verse 7. He keeps saying this is grace at work in their life. This is grace. What is grace? Uh, The way pastors like to say it a lot of times is it's God's riches at Christ's expense. You can kind of make an acronym out of it. God's riches at Christ's expense. Um, The word really, if you just look it up in the dictionary of the world, the word means favor or kindness. It's this big, beautiful word that's a catch-all term to communicate that God has given us something that we didn't deserve. That even though we deserved death, we've separated ourselves from God because of a rebellion and our sin, God gives us life and righteousness in the form of Jesus Christ dying on the cross to take away our sins rising from the dead to promise us victory over death and over sin. So we have this great exchange where we give our sin to Jesus and Jesus gives us his perfect righteousness and his life. That's grace. And so God's posture of kindness towards us is grace. And in that kindness, he gives grace to us uh, in our individual lives that we can then give to others. We share what God has given to us. So the model of giving here is sacrificial giving. It's heart giving, it's a begging to give, it's a desire to give towards the needs of others. And what I want you to understand is that the model he doesn't give us is the tithe, which is the most common model in churches today. Um, So what I kind of want to do is I want to kind of tear it down and build it back up for you, okay? The tithe. I want to kind of tear that down, and and first I want to say that the tithe was the Old Testament standard of giving, uh, that we were Uh, In the Old Testament, we had the legislation of Israel. They were a nation state that had all kinds of laws that we would say we are no longer bound by. Both Hebrews and the book of Galatians is very clear that we are now under the new covenant, that Jesus fulfilled the old covenant, he died, and he rose from the dead, and now we're under the new covenant. So that covenant, like a marriage, was fulfilled. There was a death, and now there's a new covenant. And that's very clearly what Hebrews and Galatians teaches. And so what carries over is the morality of the Old Testament. It's the same moral system. We, we believe in the same Ten Commandments. We believe in the same standards of ethics and sexuality from the Old Testament, but we don't keep every single little legislative law from the Old Testament because we are not a part of the nation state of Israel. And so I would say we are then not commanded to tithe in that sense. So there, I took it away. Now I'm going to kind of give it back. Uh, evidence for the tithe. People would say, well, there was a tithe before the nation of Israel ever started. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. So it was kind of a standard practice. It was kind of a universal way to give towards what you believed was uh, valuable, your religion, your faith, to support the work of other people. So 
a lot of people would say, even though we're not commanded to tithe any longer, it's still just a good universal standard. And I would argue, argue yeah, it, it is. It's a pretty good standard. It's a pretty good model. But hear me, it's not the model that Paul gives us. So we might want to start with a tithe, right? Like if you have a real concrete brain, you want to go, what? I need to start with something, right? Like I don't want to just throw a dart at a wall and hit a number. Let's start with a tithe. The tithe is literally a tenth. That's what the word means. If you're not sure what to give, if you want to support the ministry of a church and missionaries and the poor in your community, say, well, well maybe I should carve off 10%. That's a good place to start. Um, but the model that he gives is sacrificial giving, is generous giving by people that couldn't afford it. That's, that's a model. It's heartfelt giving. It's grace supernaturally changing us so that we are begging to give. That, that's the model. So I just want to clarify the difference there. I'm not saying it's bad to use the tithe, but I'm also not saying we're commanded to use the tithe. I'm saying, yeah, it's a good, it's a good place to start. It's a good model. I've been working on the transmission of my daughter's truck. Um, pray for me because it's not going well. But I was uh, filling up the transmission fluid, and I was looking online to try to figure out how many quarts of fluid it takes and, and all this sort of thing. And I found this um, website that showed me how to read the dipstick, right? Because when you're checking a dipstick, whether it's oil or transmission fluid, you can get a false read, right? Those of you that have ever checked a dipstick, because it can kind of lay at an angle and it can be laying in the fluid. And so you have to check both sides, right? Because the fluid can be way up high on one side, but lower on the other side. And so just to use the analogy what we've been talking about with giving, you might say, I'm tithing, I'm fine, everything's cool. I gave, my, I gave the right number. And it might be a false read, right? You, you might be reading the high side. When, when the standard that Paul gives us is sacrificial, generosity, begging to give, through your affliction, through your difficulty, God, let me give. I want to be a part of what you're doing in the world. It's a much higher level. It's not a number. It's a heart that's completely given over to God. So there should be some, some uncomfortable squirming. Those of us that are completely under guilt all the time because we're not giving the right number, Maybe it should be an issue of a prayer, and you should recognize that you don't live under guilt because in Christ, all your guilt has been taken away. And so it's just genuinely a question between you and Jesus. How much should I give? How should I change my lifestyle? Am I giving in the right way? Am I handling my finances well? On the flip side, those of you that are giving what you think is the right number, but you never think about it, is your heart really in it? Are you completely given over? To the Lord. So I think on both sides of it, we need to give ourselves to the Lord. We need to pray. We need to genuinely ask Him, God, is this what you want me to give? Is this how you want me to live? Is this the lifestyle you have for me? Should I simplify? Should I, should I live bigger so I can open up my home to bless other people? Should I live smaller so that I can manage my money more efficiently? God, what, what do you want me to do? We need to genuinely ask Him that question. There's no universal right or wrong on those issues. The standard is giving to the needs of others. We'll see in other scriptures it's giving to the um, furtherance of the gospel as well as a common theme in scripture. But the model of giving is, is the heart more than a number. It's the heart more than a number. Um, I want to share a couple of other verses. So I said in this model, they're giving towards poor Christians. That's pretty universal throughout the Old Testament. That, you know They would give and part of that money would go to support the poor. Um, and then... We also give a lot to support the ministry of the Word. So I just want to give you some Scripture texts. Trust that you already believe that because you're, you're here at a church and, and most of you give. Uh, 
I don't look up the records to see who gives what, but I just know that our church is well taken care of. So I know most of you are giving. Uh, but Galatians 6.6, 6, 1 Corinthians 9.14, 1 Timothy 5.17, and Luke 10.7 are all verses that say, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we should be giving towards the furtherance of the gospel. We should be giving towards the teaching of the scriptures, the sending out of missionaries, the growing of churches and ministries. So that's a general principle on top of giving towards the relief and the help of the poor. James one twenty seven talks about that. He says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So those are the two big categories that we would give towards um, helping the poor and pushing out the message of the gospel, pushing out the truth of who Jesus is. Um, and we should be doing it in a way that our whole heart is in it. Our whole heart is in it. You can't just check a number and say, that's, that's the right number. But the model that Paul gives here is an overflow through affliction in an abundance of joy, through extreme poverty, overflowing in generosity, above and beyond their means. That's, that's the supernatural model that requires grace in our life for that to be possible. We, we just can't do that out of our flesh. We can't do it on our own unless Jesus is doing something supernatural in our life. The next thing I want us to think about is the power of giving. The power of giving. So how is that possible? What is that grace that's at work? As I just said, it can't happen in our flesh. We can't just decide to do that, right? You can't just say, I'm good at spreadsheets. I'm going to give a lot of money, right? It's not a math thing. It's a heart thing. It's a supernatural transformation that comes through what Jesus is doing in our life. So look at verses 7 through 9. So chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. So again, it's an act of grace. Verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So again, Paul is saying, I'm not commanding you. I'm telling you this is an opportunity to show others that Jesus' love is at work in your life. This is an opportunity for witness. This is an opportunity to display Jesus to the world. And then he says in 9, this is a verse I emphasized earlier, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's that exchange that I talked about earlier, that, that substitution. We like to call it the substitutionary atonement. Jesus took our sin. He gives us his righteousness. Athanasius, one of the oldest theological books we have, is called On the Incarnation. He was a guy that wrote right after the Nicene Council in the 300s A.D., wrote this book on the Incarnation, and he talks about how Jesus, uh, as God, was also fully man. So there was this exchange that was happening there. God giving himself for us as the perfect God-man who, as a human being, could take all of our sin upon himself and give us his perfect righteousness as the only perfect man that ever lived. So it's this beautiful exchange, and that is the power of our giving. That's the reason we give. We don't give to impress other people. We don't give to earn God's love. There, there's two kind of theologies of giving, of giving out there that I would say are wrong. There's the um, prosperity gospel, and there's the poverty gospel. Prosperity gospel says if you give this tithe or if you give this proper amount, then God will have to make you rich and bless you temporally now. Have you all heard that before? If you turn on the TV, if you watch the TV preachers, that's common. If you Go to half the churches in Colleen. That's, that's common. And 
If I could, I would preach it, but the, the Word of God constrains me from preaching that same message. So the, so the message is, give the right amount and God has to bless you. It's like a vending machine, right? Put your quarter in, you get your, your blessing out. It's a mechanical view of God. God being constrained to do what you make Him to do because you give the right money, so now He owes you. Um, that would be called the prosperity gospel. Then the other extreme would be the poverty gospel. Uh, the poverty gospel is kind of an overreaction to the prosperity gospel. It's like, no, we're supposed to struggle and suffer like Jesus, and Jesus gave up everything, so we should all give up everything, and none of us should have a job anymore, none of us should have a house. We, we should all just live under a bridge because um, that makes us more holy, and God is more impressed with us when we give up everything, right? So that's the other extreme. Now, God, God may, may call you to that, but that's not the standard of Christian living, right? I think the standard of Christian living is what we would just call the gospel, right? We don't have to put an adjective on it. It's not the poverty gospel. It's not the prosperity gospel. It's just the gospel that Jesus gave his life to you and for you, and now you want to give your life to other people. And that is going to look different for all of you. All of you have different resources. You have different gifts. You have different passions. You have different desires. And what you are called to do is to give those skills and talents and treasure to the work of the Lord in this world for his glory. And you're not doing it on the prosperity side so that you can get rich next week. And you're not doing it on the poverty side so you can impress God or other people with how much you've given up. You're doing it because you really want to because Jesus gave himself for you. That's what we're called to. We're called to give in response to what God has done for us. Again, not to prove anything to anyone. Not to look a certain way. Not to impress anyone. Not certainly to impress God. We are justified not by our giving but by what Jesus did for us. Do you understand the difference? If you think you're justified by a tithe, you're going to give for the wrong reasons. And if you think you're justified by poverty, you're going to give for the wrong reasons. But if you believe you're justified by Jesus and Jesus alone, then your giving will be natural and it'll flow out of your life, no matter what the circumstances are. I have a picture here to think about this exchange of of, uh, Jesus. Maybe this is just like a little break for you to lighten the mood. This is The Princess and the Pauper. It was a Barbie movie. Any of you seen this movie? It's a great work of art. Yes, you in the back. Thank you. Yes, she's my daughter's age, and that was my daughter's favorite movie as a kid. Um, So these two girls that look just alike except for hair color, and they change places. Mark Twain had a famous book called The Prince and the Pauper. I think it's been used in a lot of different fairy tales, some variation of this idea, right? And that's kind of that's kind of the story that we have with Jesus. He's the prince, we're all the paupers. He he had great riches. Philippians talks about he gave up his great wealth to give it to us to raise us to his place, to bring us into the family of God, to save us, to love us, and that's why we give. The power of giving is because of what Jesus did for us, the exchange, the substitution, how he became uh, the one that took away our sin. He gives us his righteousness. So when you relate to God, you don't relate to God thinking, God, are you happy or sad with me today based on how much I gave? Or do you relate to God saying, God, you love me. I know that because of Jesus. You love me. I know that because of Jesus. So now I want to give. Here's what I got. Here are my loaves and fishes. Right? Like the little boy, the feeding of the 5,000. Here's what I got. God, will you take what I have? Will you multiply it? Will you use it for your kingdom? Will you use it to help others to find you as well? Because I've found you, and now I want other people to find you. And the way we do that is when we spend our resources to, to tell people about him, 
and to show people what he's like. So when we're helping the poor, we're showing them what Jesus is like. He's the one, again in verse 9, the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So when we're helping the poor, we're doing that. Now, just a clarification, we don't want to just randomly help poor people, you know, just drop money at poor people left and right. Um, I think it's good to do it smartly. It's good to back ministries that do it well, that get involved in their lives. Don't just throw coin at people to make yourself feel better. Get involved in people's lives. Genuinely help them, right? One of the books we like to recommend a lot by Corbett and Fickard is When Helping Hurts. It's a really good book that helps us to understand how we can help people systemically, long-term, actually get involved in their life, not just throw money at them to make ourselves feel better, take away our guilt, but genuinely help them. Uh, in the New Testament, it says, he who does not work should not eat. So there are some, there are some boundaries to giving and to helping struggling people. Help them in a way that helps them long-term. But that's always a standard in the Bible. We, those who have money always help those that don't have money. Just do it in a smart way. And then the other side of that is the propagation of the gospel, the communication of the words of Jesus and who he is. And so when we help the poor, we don't want to just have actions of helping, hurting people. We want to have words that help them make sense of it, right? Like, I'm helping you physically because Jesus helped me. That's why I'm doing this. And so we want to tie the knot between those two things and not allow those to become separated. So that's the power of giving. Uh, another example of this that I think of is in Philippians 4.13. In Philippians 4.13, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Anybody heard that verse before? Uh, when I first became a Christian, I was a senior in high school and I was an athlete. And so I had a shirt that had like a picture of people doing all kinds of different athletic events on it. And it had that verse on it. Um, and no offense if you have that shirt. I don't think they make them anymore. That was 25 years ago. But um, that's not what the verse means. It doesn't mean I can high jump because of Jesus. It doesn't mean I can tackle well because of Jesus. What it means is Paul in chapter 4 is saying, I've gone without and I've had plenty. And I've learned the secret of contentment. I can be happy when I'm poor. And I can be happy when I'm rich. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So the goal is not if we give enough money, then we'll be rich. Or if we give enough money and we're really spiritual, then we'll be poor, right? Prosperity gospel, poverty gospel. No. We just give because Jesus has given to us. And we're content in Jesus, in plenty, and in want. That's what Philippians 4 tells us. So the last thing I want us to see is the goal of giving. The goal of giving, we're not giving to get that money back. We're giving to sow seeds of more Jesus in the world. That's really the goal. That's what we're planting. That's what we're sowing. That's what we're farming, to use the farming analogy. So flip over to chapter 9, 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9 talks also about the heart aspect. We're giving out of the overflow of our heart, but then it starts talking about the sowing and reaping principle, which is a favorite of prosperity gospel teachers. This is a Old Testament principle. Um, God has generally wired the world so that if you work hard and you sow good seeds uh, and you brush your teeth and you get to bed on time, you're going to be blessed, right? I would, I would agree with that. That is generally how God has wired the world. But that's not the main point. And that's what prosperity gospels mix up so much is they say that's the goal in life is, is immediate temporal blessing. And that is generally how God has wired the world. We should read Proverbs to our kids. We should teach our kids to work hard and to give and to do all these things that generally sow good things into our life. But that's not exactly what Paul is talking about. So, so let's read 2 Corinthians 9, 6. 
He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So if you're a televangelist, what you would say is, see, if you give more money, you'll get more rich, right? That's how that would be taught. But in context here, Paul is talking about sowing material things towards a spiritual harvest. So we sow our our talents and our money and our house and our time and our attention and our listening ear and all these things that God's given us in this material world, we sow those into spiritual things for the sake of Christ. And then we reap a harvest of more Jesus in the world, more people knowing Jesus and savoring Jesus and delighting in Jesus in the world. So he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We have never gone without as a church, and this has been a very important verse to us. We've never said we are going to make you give a certain amount for our church to survive. We've just all got to give a certain amount. We've all got to agree to that. I think there's some degree of freedom that churches have to covenant together and say, we all agree to give X, or we all agree to do this together. I think that's fine. Uh, But because so many churches abuse that in our community, we decided early on that we weren't going to do that. We were just going to say, give, because Jesus gave to you. And we thought we'd see what happens. And you know what? It's gone great. It's worked out just fine. So, So give, because Jesus has given to you. Pray that the Lord would lead you. Give to the ministries of this church. Give to the poor person living next door to you. Give to the missionary that you know that I don't even know about. We're going to trust the Holy Spirit to lead you in that. We're going to trust him. When we run out of money, we're going to tell you about it. We're going to say, hey, we're out of money. We need some money, right? We're going to just be completely transparent about that, but we're going to trust the Holy Spirit to lead you in how to give so that it's not under compulsion, but it's a cheerful giving. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He keeps going on. He basically kind of just ramps up into this ecstatic praise of how awesome God is for the way he works in this world. So, so hear me. Mixed into all that, God will often bless you materially so that you can give more. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm saying the point, the goal of the giving is to reap a harvest of righteousness. The goal is to see more Jesus, to see more people savoring Jesus, delighting in Jesus, loving Jesus, sensing Jesus, walking with Jesus. That is the goal of why we're giving. Along the way, God might say, hey, you're really good at giving. I'm going to give you a million dollars so you can give more, right? That might happen, but that's not the goal. That's not the goal. The goal is more Jesus. The goal is seeing the multiplication and the spread of Jesus in the world. So we have a picture here of someone working the ground. It is hard work. I want to take you back to it's it's not easy. It's not just like magical. It's not like just surfing and, you know, it just happens. There's work involved, right? You're going to sweat over it. You're going to cry over it. You're going to pray like, God, what do you want me to give? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to spend these resources you've given me? There's going to be times when you doubt what you did. Um, but continue to sow those seeds and entrust them to Jesus. Say, how do you want me to spend myself? And remember that what you're planting is you're not planting seeds of money so that you can grow a money tree. You're planting seeds of money or seeds of talent or seeds of your emotional energy 
into other people's lives so that you can grow more righteousness, more Jesus in the world. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? The goal of giving, to see his righteousness expanded. As we wrap up, I want you to think about practical next steps that you can take. What are areas of giving that you believe God is calling you to give towards? Um, Again, I wish I could just have you all sign a paper up front and uh, say, I will give this amount and I'm going to give this, and then you can all be, you know, tier one members at Grace Bible Church. But I, I believe that God is calling me through this passage to tell you, Jesus has given himself for you. What are you going to give in response? It might come through this church. It might come to help us spread what we're doing here locally. It might go to an orphanage in another country. It might go to some missionaries that are doing some other kind of ministry that I don't even know about. What are you doing to spread the work of Jesus in this world? What does he want you to do next with the resources that he's given you? As we wrap up, I was thinking about another article that I've come across, actually several articles talking about the financial investment of having children. Have you all seen any of these articles last couple of years? I've seen these in like different magazines, Salon and Forbes, and just different blogs and different magazines talking about, is it financially worth it to have children? Is it financially worth it to have children? Have you all, heard, have you all seen any of these, any of you? Maybe not. Um, probably 100 years ago, if you lived on a farm and you had eight kids, it was totally worth it. But today, financially, it's not worth it. It's just not. Sorry, bad news. If you want to make a lot of money, don't have kids. I mean, that's the bottom line. And it's funny to me that that people are even having this discussion. Like, when did we think that was the purpose of having kids anyway? You know, like you're thinking, why? Why are you even asking this question? Of course, it's a lot of expense. One of the basic rules of economics is the value of something is whatever people are willing to pay for it. The value of something is whatever people are willing to pay for it. And Jesus has placed an infinite value on your head. He said, I'm willing to give my life for you. I'm going to die for you. Jesus gave up everything, not so he could be rich next week, not so he could have a better house or a better Cadillac. Jesus gave everything so he could have you. That's what Jesus gave himself for, to save you, to bring you into his family. And that's what I want us to remember. That's what I want us to meditate on. That's what I want to to change us. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship as we have communion together and sing a final song together. God, we thank you that you gave yourself for us in Jesus. We thank you that you love us. We pray that we would uh, be supernatural givers, um, that you would give us opportunities and experiences where we could see your grace at work in us and through us and through our friends and through those around us. God, we thank you for how you gave up everything for us. We thank you for giving us Jesus. We thank you for loving us and adopting us into your family, and we pray that we would be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.